Well, at the end of this passage that we're in today, Jesus uh, speaks of the kingdom of God. And he speaks about the kingdom of God as though it is something that he has been offering, as though it's something that he's been offering to people as an alternative uh, way of living and that it's distinctive in how it's lived out. It's a contrast to what are the existing motives of the way people live their lives. There's a contrast in uh, what drives and shapes people and a contrast in in how those things get expression, the expressed into lives, how the motivations of our hearts then go on to get executed uh, in, in the world around us. A kingdom of contrast is what Jesus is bringing our attention to at the bottom of this passage of people who, though they currently live in this fallen, sinful world, are still able to participate in it and enjoy all the benefits of the kingdom of God and its blessings as they come into our lives and into this world. For Jesus, seeking uh, the kingdom of God is to to have a a relational priority towards uh, participating in the kingdom of God. And that's evidenced in your lives, uh, sorry, it actually gives evidence to the fact that you have entered into the kingdom of God, that you are in a different kind of relationship uh, with God and that Jesus has been saying that he has come to make this participation in the kingdom of God possible this is the the new life the new community of people that he has come to offer we spoke about that last week he's been teaching about this and not merely teaching about this his actual life demonstrates uh, what that looks like the kind of relationship with God that heals the disordered loves of the heart that can cause anxieties, as we saw last week, to get off the chain. These kind of things that see us end up uh, either having an over-desire for the accumulation of wealth or some kind of over-dread, if you like, for the perceived lack of resources in our lives. To seek the kingdom of God is to live a different kind of way, a live a way uh, that honours God and his actual presence in our lives, his rule and his reign in our lives. It's a way of living that is in contrast to that of the way of which we are born because it is a new relationship with God, one that we never had before as a loving, uh, caring father. Now, those realities exist no matter what we think, but we are now living in them, participating in them. And we have seen these things demonstrated by Jesus and we have heard Jesus say that he ascribes them to us, that he has come to be this relational rebuilder. And in Luke's gospel, indeed all the gospels, we have this historic account of Jesus uh, as as the one who brings the kingdom of God, as the one who who brings the kingdom of heaven, or as as this passage says, his kingdom. There are a few, there are a few fa- phrases in the, in the New Testament there that talk are interchangeable when it comes to the kingdom of God. Jesus, as he comes in the world, is pictured as the one who's breaking the kingdom of God into human history, and he's doing that in his person. In Jesus, the presence of God, the rule and the reign of God are both observed. We get to see them, and they're both executed. They're both manifest in the world. That's a neat trick 
that you get to be able to do when you're both fully human. We see Jesus as perfectly uh, observing, living out the kingdom of God, and we also see him perfectly executing it because he is also fully divine. He is fully God. He extends uh, rule and reign over creation. That's the kind of kingly authority that we see Jesus having. This reality of the kingdom of God is not something that uh, Jesus begins to talk about in a vacuum in this, in this gospel. It doesn't come as he speaks about some kind of context. Or it's not something that he begins to speak about like it hasn't been known, like it, it's now here or it's arriving. When Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God, it is a well understood and expected reality. The surprise that we see in the Gospels as they record it is how it arrived and how it was manifest and executed in the person of Jesus. And all throughout Luke's Gospel, we have been witnessing Jesus exercise this this kingdom rule and this kingdom reign to overcome and reverse and restore the, the, the spiritual and the physical conditions of people and their that have been destroyed and distorted through sin under the rule and reign of a counterfeit kingdom that has been set up in, the, in creation. The Graham Goldsworthy, he's an Australian scholar, theologian, uh, points out in his book, The Kingdom of God in the Old Testament. I had Graham Goldsworthy's trilogy book that had this in. I lent it to someone. If you're out there, I want it back. It would have been handy for this. I had to rely on a secondary source. But Goldworthy says that creation, which we read about in Genesis, uh, in creation, God's own sovereignty, his kingship, his rule and his reign and his presence was self-evidenting by the virtue that he created everything out of nothing. That's total sovereignty. And it was epitomized, his sovereignty, his kingness, his rule was epitomized by the fact that the world was in this probationary condition. In a way, we, we were waiting to see how creation, how people would go in relationship with God. Now we find that the realm of God intersects with this new creation, uh, and then God sets boundaries for human freedom as a good king would. Genesis describes God as a royal ruler who sets boundaries, boundaries relationally for all of humans' existence. Humanity is to rule in this new creation, this new kingdom, as God's image bearers within the presence of God, within the boundaries of God, within the design of God. The blessings of God, his personal presence, his kingdom were experienced in creation because humanity lived in intimacy with God and stewardship over nature. Both humanity's spiritual and physical needs were met with deep satisfaction and joy when they stayed inside these boundaries, when they stayed inside this good design that God had. God's realm, humanity's realm, were ruled by God's presence and blessing, and there was no distance between the two. In fact, they intersected and they shared common space. Sin was the act of rebellion in which humanity sought out its own autonomy, its own rulership, to create its own kingdom, if you like, self-rule, self-definition. This decision by humanity, though, did not bring more freedom, did not bring more capacity to rule, but rather loss of freedom, loss of rule, loss of intimacy with God, loss of freedom to live in authenticity and and generosity with each other, loss of of freedom to have dominion over creation. 
In short, the loss of the blessing of the kingdom of God that we were made to enjoy. The two realms were now separated and humanity into chaos and disorder. The total opposite of what it is to live in the presence of God, to live in his kingdom. That's why, as we said last week, it's why we build fences. That's why we nurture bitterness. That's why we face death. It's why we're always trying to build kingdoms of our own to replace the one that we lost. But these kingdoms that we build, rather than expressing the character of God, rather than moving the character of God out into all creation and and extending his blessing and his reign and his rule and his presence over all creation, what they now do is express uh, how, how we would Uh, run life they express it uh, through the abuses of power over people and over nature how power comes through force and is exercised for dominance how blessing can be selective to the people that we have preference toward our kingdoms divide over things like race and wealth and economics and policies and politics and they deny and they discredit god Nevertheless, sin did not destroy the reality of the kingdom of God or God's kingship, his rule and his presence over creation and humanity. Indeed, creation, as Jesus has been pointing out, he keeps going, you know, consider the raven. He keeps pointing towards creation to say that it still bears witness to the character and to the goodness and to the rule and the reign of God. And it tells us that this is the kind of king behind creations. This is Romans 1 and 2. This is the kind of king that's out there. He designs things like this. He provides for the ravens. He does all this sort of stuff. It's all a character reference of sorts. And we get that all the way through Scripture. Psalms talk about it. Isaiah talk about it. Nehemiah. Uh, It's in Daniel, Romans, Revelation. That the character of God, his kingship, his rule, and his reign, his presence, is, is, it's got its fingerprints in creation, even though we are frantically trying to hide it and destroy it. And so the Bible records how God responds to rebels, counterfeit kingdom builders, with grace and with patience. We talked about, we sang that song, and Sandy was talking about the characteristics of God. There are over 20 references in the Old Testament of the patience of God, how he's slow to anger, how he's overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness and justice and how he executes these characteristics with sovereignty. They're not challenged. God demonstrates his character of his sovereignty through acts of judgment and salvation, most of which are are lived out in the story of a people, a nation, a kingdom, if you like, of sorts that God formed out of one man, Adam. We read about the start of that in Genesis 12, and then off we go for the rest of the Bible. Again and again, God acts in mighty ways to deliver and preserve his people. Again and again, he acts in ways so that they would know him and live under his rule and his reign and his presence. God seeks and he moves towards rebels and counterfeit kingdom builders in ways so that they can be reminded of who their true king really is and of the kingdom that they have lost. And God comes to his people with laws and temples and prophets providing ways into this world of what it looks like to live in God's presence and under his rules. But constantly again and again, humans refuse to honor God and live out his design. 
Instead of surrendering our kingdoms of self, of self-creation, of self-promotion, uh, of self-salvation, we return, we, instead of surrendering them, we keep returning to them again and again. Uh, we celebrate them, we worship them. And, and the biblical picture of that is this, that's to our dehumanization. I don't know if you ever noticed this, but when people move away from God in the Old Testament, they become more like beasts than they do like humans. The prophetic books of the Bible begin to, with increasing measure and clarity, introduce this, this message of hope, though, of God's kingdom, his rule and his presence restored through this mysterious figure, this, this messianic, kingly figure who will one day come and he will judge the wicked and he will bring uh, redemption and, and, and a reunited humanity to creation. This, this figure grows with increasing clarity and he will, he will undo all that sin has destroyed and he will establish through his rule and his reign everlasting peace and harmony. All the disordered loves of counterfeit kingdoms reordered through this messianic king. He will once again bring people into the blessing of God as God designed it to be for human flourishing. And Luke's gospel, along with the other three gospels, present Jesus as this messianic king, as this promised kingdom restorer and rebuilder. But he is not the kind of king that our imaginations construct. He is a king that will overturn all of our ideas of how kingdoms are made, flipping them upside down. As he brings the kingdom of God, not merely into human history, but into our hearts to reorder them and reacquaint them with the character and the heart of God as he would have it lived out in this world. And in doing so, as that happens, again, we begin to see the blessings of the kingdom of God begin to take their place in the world. I just thought it's like in the Narnia book, as Aslan comes back in, you see the snow begin to melt and creation come back to its, its normal order. That's, that's kind of what the arrival of Jesus is. C.S. Lewis is brilliant. I uh, lost my spot. In Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus as the messianic king is this ultimate insider. He has come from enjoying eternal fellowship uh, within the presence of the Godhead and he comes into this alienated world to proclaim, as we saw in Luke, you know, liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, and to set liberty to those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And we know that's both physical and spiritual um, tied up in that, to preach good news, to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is all about. A kingdom that is for the poor, a kingdom that is for the sick, a kingdom that reprioritizes how we see and use our money and our resources, not for personal security, but for aiding and healing the poor. A kingdom that reprioritizes how we use power, not, not as a weapon, not for self-gain, but as a means to lift up, as a means to heal, to serve the lonely and the poor. These are the reprioritizing of this kingdom that Jesus brings, a kingdom that celebrates uh, the diversity and equality of race rather than imposing inferiority or superiority or asking it to, to have some kind of conformity. It's a kingdom of grace, of mercy and justice, and it finds delight in honoring God 
and pursuing his glory and not ours. These are all the things that Jesus has been uh, teaching as he's been going along. These are all the things that Jesus has been challenging his audience with. These are the symptoms by which you know that kingdom has come near, that the kingdom has actually broken into your life, has intersected its reality with the reality of your life. They come to us now as they did then through the person of Jesus because he is where the kingdom of God intersects and reorganizes our lives. There's a great picture of this at the beginning of John's gospel where we're like, oh, we found a Messiah and they're talking about it. And he says, you're going to see greater things than all this sort of stuff. You'll see heaven open and angels descending up and down uh, this ladder. It's the image of back to Jacob's ladder. And what, what, what Jesus is saying there is that heaven has made contact with earth. The kingdom of God is now here on earth. It's, 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 it's at work. It's doing Stuff, As Paul says, it's transferring us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of God that God loves. Paul writes about that to the Colossian church. We're going to see a great example of what this looks like, probably in about three years' time. Uh, Luke 19, when we get there, uh, there we find Zacchaeus. He is a corrupt man. He is a wealthy man, and he is a powerful man. He is described as a sinner. He is an outcast who after ha- having encountered Jesus, has his whole entire life reprioritized. And it's described as repentance. And then out of repentance, what we see is that he uses his power and his wealth in radical generosity. And Jesus says this about this, as he observes what's happening in Zacchaeus's life, that salvation, which is in this point here is a, a synonym for the kingdom of God, has come to this man's house, has come into this man's life. The kingdom of God is now in effect in the heart and the hands of Zacchaeus. It's spiritual and it's physical and it's real and it's operating in time. Earlier, prior to this moment with Zacchaeus, Jesus had had said uh, that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man like Zacchaeus to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, he says it twice, which emphasizes it, because giving up the disordered loves in our lives uh, is hard because the kingdom of God demands that they be reprioritized. That they, that they would move out rather than focus in. But it turns out, what would you know, that Jesus is a camel hunter. That's why I like him. He goes after these things. He actually says, well, he says he's come to hunt to seek, save the lost, but, you know, it's kind of my interpretation of what's going on there. He goes after the life of Zacchaeus to transform it with the grace of the kingdom of God. And that's why he says these things are impossible for men but they are possible for God. Like, yeah, you can't push a camel through the eye of a needle. But he's talking about heart conditions and approaches to life, unless you're God. Entering the kingdom. The kingdom of God is never done through your own uh, character and credentials. It is always on the basis of the one presenting the invitation. And in the Gospels, it's Jesus. He is presenting it and he is uh, applying it to our hearts. And And as Jesus points out, how that application happens, he pointed it out in chapter 11 when we started this little run, uh, when he's talking about the Lord's Prayer. 
you know, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as in heaven. Like, how's that possible? Well, through the gift of the Spirit, he says, oddly at the bottom of that. Like, it's never mentioned until he gets to the bottom. How are all these impossible things? How's this prayer going to become real? Well, not through your effort, but the gift of the Spirit from the Father. How on earth will the will of God be done on earth as it is in heaven? How does the blessing of the kingdom of God take shape in our lives so that it can take shape in the world? Well, that is the work of the Holy Spirit, according to Jesus. It's not grunt and effort, but grace and gifting. As Jesus says in our passage today, it's not your hard work, not your effort that earns you the kingdom of God, but rather it is the Father's good pleasure just to give it to you. Just to kind of just lavish it on you, let you have the whole lot. That's why Jesus can describe it as salvation coming into your life. Because it brings newness of life, newness of motives. The kingdom of God is not just, people expected it to come as a political thing, as a geographical uh, thing, a, a militaristic might. It is relational. It is being in new relationship with God. The restoring of his rule and his reign, his personal presence in your life. These are the things that Jesus has been teaching and demonstrating. He has been challenging people with. Jesus brings into effect and he also describes the qualities and the characteristics of the kingdom of God. What it looks like. What it looks like to seek after the kingdom of God. What it looks like to be rich towards God. These are all the things that we've been lurking at, learning about. What it looks like to have a heart that seeks after the same things that Jesus has been seeking after. The same things that Jesus has been pursuing as he executes and demonstrates what it looks like to both be and live in the kingdom of God. So when Jesus says in verse 29, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink or be worried for all the nations of the world seek after these things and your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. He is making a comparison statement of approach to life that people of two different kingdoms have based on the relationship they have with God. The nations represent people whose lives are orientated by the kingdoms that we build, pursuing things of our own hands, at our own self-interest. And the little flock are those whose lives are orientated by the goodness of God, of understanding him as a good father, uh, as we have encountered in Jesus. He is saying people who still live in the counterfeit kingdoms seek after counterfeit gods. They seek after wealth, money, Food, clothing, reputations, uh, power. They seek after these things. They still make these things the highest relational priorities in their lives. And so they worry after them. They worry about obtaining them. And, and will they have enough about them or don't they have enough about them? The word worry here in this part of the passage is a picture of anxious emotional insecurity and stability, like a boat being lifted up on a wave and thrown around uh, as, it, as it races between various emotions. It's insecurity that makes them use power and wealth inappropriately to obtain control, to manipulate, to have prejudices. It's the kind of thing that divides and denies and diminishes, diminishes the quality of life in others, the nation's. But you, little flock, 
an alternative people, by virtue of your relationship with me, have a different relationship with God. He is your heavenly Father. And since you have a different relationship with God as Father, do not worry. Do not be torn apart by what you do and don't have. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Like this is a warm blanket for the soul. Here is a picture of dependency. Not, not, not us trying to you know, be self-sufficient. A non-anxious approach to life because the sovereign king of creation is moving toward you as a father, like a shepherd. The imagery of believers as a little flock uh, cared for by the heavenly father actually highlights or it captures, it captures the Old Testament uh, picture of God and his tender care uh, for fragile people, but it, but it highlights the risks and it highlights the threats. They're this little flock. It highlights the worry that they face. It doesn't hide it in the description, but the reward of being a kingdom seeker, of one who cultivates the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives as Jesus commands, and not being a thing seeker, the security there is grounded in the goodness of God, of having this relationship with God as Father. It's his pleasure to give his children, this little flock, the riches of his kingdom. So whatever it has cost you, whatever it is that threatens your heart with worry as you seek to honor God in this world with your life will be replaced uh, by, be comforted by your experience of the kingdom of God in this age. Now, it's not some distant hope. It's not some down-the-line thing. It's an obtained experience. It's an, it's, it's an obtained hope. You experience and share in the kingdom of God now and its blessings as, as one of these little flock, as one of these children of the Father. It's something that Jesus addresses a bit later on with Peter in chapter 18, verse 28. Peter kind of begins to big note the disciples' radical change of trajectory and allegiance to Jesus because Jesus has just finished talking or having a discussion with the rich young ruler whose disordered love of wealth has him struggling to pursue what matters in heaven over what he can accumulate on earth. He asks the question, how can I have eternal life? Jesus basically says, you know, sell all your, sell all your possessions, and it makes him sad. He wants eternal life. He wants the kingdom of God, but he is still too dependent on the kingdoms that he builds. Now, this, is the, this is the original camel. This is where the story comes from. You can't get through the eye of the needle because he's stuff. He's too attached to his stuff. It won't let him go there. His heart is too attached to the goods of God to experience the grace of God. And Peter, you know, this guy's just trudging off, and Peter jumps in, Luke 18, 28. He's probably thinking, I'll oh, better comfort my boy Jesus here. He just failed in converting that guy. Maybe he needs a little, little pep up. And he says, hey, don't panic, Jesus. We've left everything uh, to follow you. We've left our homes to follow you. Fortunately, you know, Jesus steps in before Jesus make, Peter makes too much of a fool of himself. And he says this, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left a house or a wife or a brother or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time 
So in this age, not, not some future age, in this age, as you live now and in the age to come, eternal life, a quality of life, an experience of the kingdom of God is to be had by those who uh, leave these things behind. And when Jesus says, left behind, leave these things behind, he does not mean that you are to just simply abandon these things. He means reordered priorities towards these things, which may mean actually that you have more commitment to some things and less commitment to others. He means that all relationships have been reprioritized under one where he is the most desirable object of them all. So your assets are not your savior or where life is to be found. Jesus is. Your spouse is not your savior or where life is to be found. Jesus is. Your religious practice is not your savior or where life is to be found jesus is but whatever you lose in this reprioritizing of your heart will be replaced many times more in this age and the one to come now this is not jesus saying leave your spouse for a better one who who shares your faith or quit this job and jesus will give you a better one sell this house and you'll get a bigger one This is Jesus saying, if these things leave you because of your faith in me, you will not be lonely. You will not be without relationships. You will not be homeless. You will not be without shelter. You will not be poor. You will not be without resource. Why? Well, because you're part of the little flock, you're part of the kingdom of God, which is full of other people who seek first the kingdom of God, who seek first looking after the poor, taking care of people who have broken and estranged relationships, who seek first the comfort of others over theirs, who seek first the security of others over theirs, who share their homes with others, who share their relationship with others who give their time, their resources towards others. The kingdom of God is expressed through this new community of believers who release, who let go of their grip, their dependency on their stuff, their protection of it, their their, their isolation of it in order that those who have experienced harm and loss and brokenness have a place to go and experience it many, many times more. It's a shift of priorities of those in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is expressed through the reordered priorities of people who are rich towards God. It is not magic. It is not all care, no responsibility. Jesus says, and all these things will be added unto you. When he says that, he is saying, whatever you lost, whatever it costs to follow me will be counteracted by the relationships and the resources of the kingdom of God as it expresses itself through the people who live in it. As they encounter my grace, they will live out their grace to you. And it is eternal. You can't lose it. It can't be destroyed. It can't be taken from you. Once given, never removed. This is how anxiety and worry is met. This is how loneliness is healed. 
This is how poverty is healed. By kingdom people seeking the kingdom and living it out towards primarily other people in the kingdom. That's the first plate, that's the first point of call. And then outwards. So sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Pursuing the kingdom means caring for others rather than merely caring for yourself. The security that you have knowing that God, the sovereign king of the cosmos, cares for you like a father, like a shepherd, frees you to be radically generous with your resources, to show concern for others rather than self. That is at the heart of Jesus' teaching. And it, is, and it is the one or one of the very tangible evidences that the kingdom of God has come into your life, has come near, that salvation has come to your life. It's not the means of salvation at all. That's all Jesus. But the symptoms, the reality of the kingdom of God are lived out by those who have Jesus as king. The Christian life is this continuous transferring and self-giving of funds and resources and relationships in which we uh, um, divest Uh, We divest them from the world in order to invest them into the kingdom of God. Being kingdom seekers means investing into the eternal things that will ring into eternity, not investing into the things that are just going to become products of the next garage sale you have dust through your hands. Look around you. Who here could you be a kingdom builder toward? Who, who is experiencing their lives being invested into? Like, are we a community that actually lives this out? Or when we leave this building, do we just go back to our own little kingdoms? Build our own little castles, indifferent to our brothers and sisters? We have plenty of opportunity to invest into each other's lives and bear witness to the goodness and the character of God to a world that that does not understand how the community of God operates. We've got worn-out ministry leaders here who need a break. How could we be investing? You know, yesterday, a couple of people from this church took hours of their Saturday to go and invest into the life of a complete stranger to make her home more secure so that she could feel some sort of peace. They just went and did it. She wept. Kingdom builders. The gospel. The news that Jesus shared about himself, that he divested himself of everything, even his life, so that he could invest into you eternal life reprioritizes, should reprioritize your heart. If your heart knows nothing of this, you have not encountered Jesus and you have not encountered the kingdom of God. It reprioritizes our heart and it creates a kingdom community. Here it is. Freeway Baptist, just one of many. 
whose citizens are ambassadors of God, whose priorities are to move out rather than in. Andy talked about it in his message. Or as Peter describes in more religious terms, we are royal priests, ones who serve. Showing the world what the kingdom of God looks like and hopefully giving a foretaste of what will come. This new community models how all of life looks, how, how, how we live in, in our business practices. Are we, are we just hoarding or are we using business for the priorities of the kingdoms? How it looks in race relationships, family life, marriage, singleness, art, culture. These are all healed and rewoven by the rule and the reign and the presence of the two true king. Let's pray. Loving God, uh, again, our hearts before you. As we just sit for a little minute and we think about the priorities of our hearts. Are they more represented by our own insecurities and our own self-rule? Or have we like a little flock under the care of a good shepherd? Psalm 23. Released our grip on our kingdom so that you might come and turn our lives upside down so that we might just in the deep joy of knowing you, be free to serve other people. Prayer at the moment is just to sit for a minute and think about what kingdom our lives are pursuing.